Good morning, friends. I'm so glad you're here. Really, whatever it took for you to put on weather-appropriate clothes today <laughs> and make your way to this place you did, that's no small thing. That's something to celebrate. Really, really, really. Um, if it feels right, I invite you to um, put your arms around yourself and give yourself a little hug and celebrate yourself by saying, I'm so glad you're here. So glad you're here. It is cheesy and I love it. <laughs> I love it so much. So, as Lisa said, uh, my name is Erin Lane. I am a member here at the Southeast Raleigh Table. I'm also a writer and a theologian and a vocational facilitator, which is just a really fancy way of saying my happy place is helping people discern questions of purpose. And not just discern their purpose, but like draw courage to act on what they know. To say, as today's sermon is called, a holy yes to purpose. So let's turn to our scripture passage to ground ourselves. Our reading comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 15, verses 8 through 15 through 16. Hear now the word of God. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and become my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. I've said these things to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. No one has greater love than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. I do not call you servants any longer because the servant does not know what the master is doing, but I have called you friends because I have made known to you everything that I have heard from my father. You did not choose me, but I chose you, and I appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. This is the word of God for the people of God. To God. Will you pray with me? God of celebration, Jesus who starteth the parties, Holy Spirit confetti, open our hearts and minds and bodies today so that we may experience joy in the hearing of your word and gentleness if we cannot. May we be a community that celebrates well with one another. So here we are today, gathered on, of all days, Mother's Day. And to be perfectly honest with you, I have no idea how to celebrate this holiday anymore. Um, it felt a lot easier when I was younger. My older brother and I would ride our bikes to the local pharmacy and procure a card for mom from the Hallmark section. Or we'd call my grandmas and engage in really bad kid chit chat. Lord have mercy if you know what I'm talking about. It 
felt a lot easier to celebrate this holiday when I was the one being mothered rather than the one expected to mother. I felt these expectations keenly growing up on white bread and Jesus in the American Midwest. But the role of mother just never felt quite right for me. I got lucky, or call it holy mischief, and found a partner who also didn't hear the still, small voice to become a parent. So we declared ourselves child-free for the common good. We declared ourselves ministers of availability to other people's children. There were a lot of declarations. Then, somewhat unexpectedly, we found ourselves with three gorgeous girls under our roof who call us Rush and Aaron. But that's a longer story. So, I have no idea how to celebrate this holiday anymore. And I'm not the only one who's confused. While researching my new book, Someone Other Than a Mother, um, I learned that even the founder of Mother's Day had an ambivalent relationship to the holiday. So Anna Jarvis established the day in 1908 as a way to honor her own deceased mother's legacy of work on behalf of women and children, and in part to counterbalance our culture's obsession with masculine or historically masculine achievements. She hoped the day would be a reminder for people to write or visit one's own mother or even attend one's mother church. But by the time, <laughs> this is great, you really can't make this part of history up. Um, by the time it became a national holiday in 1914, Mother's Day had already been turned into merch. So Jarvis eventually becomes so jaded by all the carnations and confections and branded menu items. Um, there's a report that she went to a department store and ordered a Mother's Day brunch salad and then like dramatically tossed it on the floor in protest. That by the time she died in 1948, she had spent nearly all her free time and fortune lobbying to cut it from our calendars. <laughs> so, as I've reflected on it more, I think the danger of this day is not that mother isn't a role worth celebrating. It is good and holy and harrowing work, and as the writers of a beautiful book called Revolutionary Mothering describe it, it's love by any means necessary. But the problem is that sometimes mother is venerated as a superior source of love, identity, and purpose to all the others. And friends, this isn't just not true, this isn't Christian. Today's scripture passage tells a different story than the cultural one a lot of us have inherited. It tells a story in which other love, not mother love, is your greatest legacy. Jesus is in the thick of giving his farewell address to his disciples, so he's contemplating his own legacy. And he says, remember, I'm like a vine and you're like branches. You're only gonna be as fruitful as the source you're connected to. You're only gonna be as fruitful as your ability to abide. Now, all this business about being fruitful would have sounded familiar to Jesus' disciples. It might sound familiar to you. 
You might remember the opening creation story in Genesis where God appears on the scene, bibbidi-boppidi-booping the earth into existence. Night and day, land and sea, winged creatures and sea monsters. Yes, they're called sea monsters. And then finally, God fashions humankind in their image and blesses us, blesses us, not commands us to be fruitful and multiply. Be fruitful and multiply. A narrow reading of this account argues that our best and most beautiful purpose is to procreate, or at least to expend a lot of effort trying. Men and women are made to make love and make babies so that the world is filled with God's people. And not only are these instructions considered good sense for the continuation of the human race, but also for the continuation of the faith. Unfortunately, though, this narrow reading of purpose has been used to stigmatize those people, those of us, who are not yet biological parents, or not able to become biological parents, or don't want to become biological parents. Like somehow we are less than fully human, a shell of our God-given potential, cursed to live a life of perpetual FOMO. Like, no wonder Mother's Day in the church can be painful for some. But as if sensing we were prone to get confused about these things, Jesus makes plain what kind of fruit matters most. And it's not the fruit of our womb, and it's not even the fruit of our labor. Our capital P purpose has nothing to do with what we do for a living and nothing to do with how we make family. Those are little p personal purposes and they matter, but they're not what matters most. Our capital P purpose is simply to abide. Christians get so hung up sometimes on this narrow meaning of be fruitful and multiply. We say, make babies, make nations, make something of yourself, fill the world with something of yourself because this is how the world will not forget you or your God. And if influence is the measure of worth, then multiplying your genes or multiplying your beliefs is a good way to prove it. But now, like, hear me out. What if our legacy is not meant to prove anything? Christians get so hung up sometimes on this narrow meaning of be fruitful and multiply that we miss Jesus' expansive calling to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. And reading this, I wonder to myself, like, what kind of fruit lasts? Not literal fruit. Not the spotted, decaying bananas nobody in our house eats but me. <laughs> not my own spotted, decaying body. Or even my children's beautiful but still decaying bodies. These fruits are brilliant and gorgeous, but ultimately temporal. 
What Jesus is talking about, I think, is leaving a legacy of eternal fruits, or what I like to call the fruits of the kingdom. Like, this is a legacy of sitting at the feet of Scripture. A legacy of savoring the joy of salvation, or what it feels like to live whole. A legacy of abiding in the viney love of God, so we might better be able to abide with one another. No one has greater love than this, Jesus says, than to lay down one's life for one's friends. It's a really radical pronouncement in a society that doesn't venerate friendship nearly as much as family. Other love, Jesus says, will be our shining legacy. Other love is how we bear fruit that lasts. Other love is how we multiply life-giving life. Other love is a democratic love that we can know and grow whether we ever partner, parent, or procreate. Other love asks not how will I make my mark, but who will I be marked by? Do you notice how many times in that scripture passage we heard Jesus says, I'm only doing this because I'm marked by God? I'm only doing this because I'm abiding and letting my life be shaped by someone. So here's the deal. (laughs) I have been radically marked by you and other people, so many of you in this community. I've been marked by Pastor Lisa Yaboa and her love for neighbors and her neighbor's children, or as she likes to remind me, you can have children without having children. I've been marked by Nicole Karam and her love for communal singing. So you know when parents say about their children, you've never known a love like this. Well, like that's how Nicole feels about like leading worship or going to like a Sylvanesso concert. I've been marked by Becky and Alex Blanco and their love for one another and how they are gleefully writing their own version of the good life. I've been marked by Blair Watson and her self-love because self-love is a kind of other love too. When she says, honestly, tenderly, I am grateful for the joys present in my life and I am grieving what is missing. And I've been marked by Margaret Brunson and her desire to reframe love as an ethic rather than an achievement. The truth is, um, I've never been celebrated as much as when I achieved official parent status. Like, child-free, my life got the blank stare. And then mothering, I got the gold star. And at first, this made me very mad and very sad and prompted me to like, well, write a whole book about it. (laughs) Um, Like what is so underwhelming about a life not centered on children or children of your own? But now I realize this, that life wherever it's found on display is worth celebrating. So perhaps, we might celebrate Mother's Day by celebrating the 
under-celebrated aspects of each other's lives. Or as I sometimes like to put it, celebrating the less shiny bits of a life well-lived. Like the fact that you showed up here today and maybe even took some vitamins before you got here. <laughs> or the fact that you will restrain yourself later if you order a salad. You will not toss it on the floor and that can be a celebration if that happens. Or the fact that you will let some small grief or some small joy pass through your body today. And even if not, you will be gentle with yourselves and others. I think Anna Jarvis would have liked it this way. After all, she started this holiday to celebrate the under-celebrated in our society. I think she would like it that we not forsake a single moment to celebrate the quietly revolutionary on another ordinary Sunday. And I think Jesus would have liked it this way too. Because Jesus reminds us at its core, our purpose has never been about what we produce or reproduce. Our purpose is to say a holy yes to a to wrap our hands around ourselves and hear God say, along with our own cheesy selves, I'm so glad you're here. May it be so.